Amazing this time. That was no simulation. Oh I know. I'm sorry. I such an honor. I have been to the dark side. I have seen a world that no man should see. Really, for most people, it was a rather pleasant experience. I mean, so your hosts here are the Malcatraz and the Machine. We'll let you decide who's who. But today, conspiracy theories are all the rage. We're going to go into how Charlie Kaufman, the brilliant mind behind being John Malkovich and the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is actually the true master behind, behind the show Friends, and also how he might be the same person as Christopher Nolan. The guilt by association, we can really run with this. Charlie is a universe spiraling out of control. I'm Duncan. This is Ryan. You're the audience, and together we are hardly the hottest. Right. So speaking of self-loathing, spinning out of control, we're going to talk about our good buddy, Charlie Kaufman. We'll delve into a little writer Kaufman first. This is a selection of his filmography, however. Otherwise, I feel like we might be here forever. Uh-huh. Trapped in purgatory. I've already lost some sense of time talking with you about this off-air when production meetings. So. Oh, yeah. We, we had a two-hour conversation about how to have a one-hour conversation. So yeah, we're going to try to have a structured conversation about a deconstructionist, Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, so I, I think I watched all eight films of his in the span of two weeks, and I don't know if that was good for my mental health, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a rabbit hole. Uh, again, your shirt's still off. I'm not sure you're aware that you are a person who exists. I think you've been lost in the time continuum. Duncan, but first, let's give our fans what they want. What have you been doing? Spinning out of control, watching Charlie Kaufman films. <laughs> okay. I just feel like we just got to give a little snapshot into the life of Duncan. Besides that, I have found my calling as a part-time stay-at-home uncle. <laughs> we're making strides. We're, we're maturing and growing. Uh, shaping the minds of the future. Duncan, you've got some fancy words here for us. Go ahead and take it away. Solipsism? Oh, Charlie. Yeah. So as heady and as abstract as Charlie Kaufman films are, yeah, today we're going to be focusing on being John Malkovich, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, and a little bit of adaptation as I try to convince Ryan to give it a re-examination. But yeah, heady stuff, cerebral stuff, abstract, absurd. But certainly all of his films have like a key line whether he's just flipping through the DSM mental health manual trying to find a disorder that he can really sink his teeth into or a quote from classic literature. What seems to be coming up again and again with Charlie is solipsism, which is the philosophical idea that only your own mind is sure to exist. So living in that headspace with Charlie, that's why it's been a tough few weeks. I don't know what's going on in there. But yeah, we'll get to the bottom of it as we break down some of these films. Duncan, are you just a projection of my mind and I'm just having a conversation with myself? We're saving that one for next week. And 
I'm thinking of ending things. You remember our therapist from a couple episodes ago? They're going to have a lot of work to do after this. <laughs> Indeed. Interesting turn of effects. Two titans of cinema had films come out on the same day. The eccentric, uh, small audience, big fan base, Charlie Kaufman, his film was available to everyone on Netflix. And the other titan, Christopher Nolan, the blockbuster extraordinaire, his little film, you, I would have had to drive 60 miles to see it in a theater. Yeah, there's no theaters open where I'm at. So Tenet is a Colorado road trip or Texas road trip. And uh, at this point, I'm not willing to make those sacrifices. Crossing state lines to see some cinema. We were just spitballing, spiraling out of control, as you can do trying to figure out Charlie. But we, we were discovering a lot of similarities to, uh, between Charlie Kaufman and Christopher Nolan. I mean, when you texted me that, I thought that was especially funny. I'm going to do the worst one first. This one is absolutely forced, desperate to make a connection that's not there. But being John Malkovich, getting inside the head of Malkovich and Batman begins, if you switch the words, they're, they're close to each other. And just as Bruce has to get into the mind of Batman and wear that mask. I'll let you have it, but we're definitely Shyamalan territory right now. <laughs> Moving along. But yeah, if you want to go into the loss of memory, trying to recreate your loved one, we've got Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or Memento. And this one I just come up, came up with today. Twins who are struggling to find their voice in the arts. Are we talking about the prestige? Or are we talking about adaptation? If you want to talk about worlds within worlds within worlds, when all you really want is just one person to love you deep inside your heart, we talked in Synecdoche, New York, or Inception. And then finally, if you want to talk about a descent into hell, traveling through time, don't know what's real and what's not, we got I'm Thinking of Ending Things and Interstellar. Wait, Puppet what if Kaufman and Nolan are the same person? Have we seen them in the same room? No. We're onto something. Nobody likes anything more than conspiracy theories right now. <laughs> yeah, so I was seeing Being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine, an adaptation, probably the first time in 15 plus years. What was it like for you watching some of these films again after such a long break? Yeah, it was definitely a blast from the past. I probably have not delved into Being John Malkovich or Eternal Sunshine since college and just after when I first got into movies. And was just voraciously tearing through Netflix's three disc plan. Uh, and I would watch two movies typically a day at night after everyone else went to sleep. And so I hadn't seen them in a while. It was over my head then, I will say. <laughs> I, I picked up a lot more uh, looking at being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine again. And it did kind of feel familiar, but so much more there than I remembered. Yeah, same. These were certainly a nostalgia trip. Was going, had to go through my personal sort of history timeline. Was like, was I first watching this post breakup of my first relationship or when I was in the midst of another requited situation? But it was yeah, certainly fun to see these uh, a second time around after so long, sort of remembering some plot lines and learning them again anew, just as uh, Jim Carrey is erasing memories and having them at the same time. Yeah, the films are absurd, abstract, sort of high concept plots, but 
there is there is a heart underneath all there. There is some thinking going on, not just all fun and games, especially as his career progresses. Yeah, he does seem to go from maybe a little, I don't know if lighthearted is right. Maybe just kind of like typical black comedy, a lot on his mind, but there's some appeal there. It's eccentric, it's quirky, it's weird. And then, yeah, I feel like he definitely gets darker as he goes. I was doing some research on his writing career and I got a kick out of some of this stuff. Yeah, I saw you had some stuff lined up there. Take us away. Take it away. Duncan loves making lists. Yeah, so Charlie started his writing career in 91 on Get a Life, which I barely remember just being Chris Elliott, being a super freak. R.E.M. had the theme song, so it was very early 90s. Um, That's when he first worked with Bob Odenkirk. So yeah, that's an eccentric sitcom. Followed up by a little sketch show called The Edge. He was working along with Tom Kenny, who's SpongeBob, Wayne Knight, who is Newman, and a, a little unknown actress named Jennifer Aniston. Wait, really? Yes. So I didn't do much too many. Videos. I'm like reading this as you're saying this. I, I, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Wow, he's he's responsible for Friends. I, exactly. Because his next show was called Trouble with Larry, where he wrote for Bronson Pinochet and Courtney Cox. Here you go. The conspiracy theory number two. We're on the second one in 20 minutes. Actually, the mind behind Friends is Charlie Kaufman. He's the missing link behind all of them. So yeah, he followed Trouble with Larry up with an, in 95 with another sort of a sitcom starring Thomas Hayden Church and Deborah Messing. And then he really came into the powerhouse show, the Dana Carvey show. There's a documentary about this show on Hulu, Too Funny to Fail. Haven't seen that yet, but starring Dana Carvey, Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert. And on the writing staff, we also got Robert Smeagol, Bob Odenkirk, Dino Stamatopoulos, Greg Daniels, and John Glazer, who will be giving a shout out at the end of the show. So after Kaufman single-handedly started Better Call Saul, Friends, and many other of our favorite TV shows of the 90s and 2000s, he started movies. And that's when he wrote Being John Malkovich, 1999. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. There's no such thing as a hole into somebody's brain. Yes, there is. You see the world through John Malkovich's eyes? And then after about 15 minutes... That's not me. I didn't say that. You're spit out into a ditch on the side of the New Jersey turnpike. It was amazing. Where the hell are we? We're Malkovich's subconscious. A unsuccessful, disgruntled puppeteer named Craig, played by John Cusack, who I am normally not a big fan of. We got different tastes in men, right, guy? (laughs) I mean, we love each other, so what does that say? Uh, we actually don't? (laughs) (laughs) Opposites attract. We'll we'll move on. So Craig, or John Cusack, finds a portal into the head of actor John Malkovich. And after he finds that portal, everything becomes pretty crazy as everybody wants to go in that portal and let the existential comedy and dread begin. Yeah, we got wonderful starring roles from also Cameron Diaz, Catherine Kinnear, and John Malkovich is in the film. And as crazy as that plotline is, little did we know that the craziest thing about that film would be the career turn that Charlie Sheen took. I forgot. <laughs> I did think it was funny that he was in there as just this nonchalant playing himself like movie actor. But my big takeaway 
when you asked me what was it like to watch this movie was I basically forgot Cameron Diaz existed. <laughs> Ooh, I hadn't seen her in anything in so long. That's not supposed to be a burn. I just hadn't seen anything, seen her in anything in so long. So it was kind of like rediscovering her again. I mean, when's the last time you watched her in something? Yeah, I don't think you've seen her in anything in six years because she hasn't been in anything since Annie 2014. Yeah. She cranked up the other woman, sex tape, a spot on Saturday Night Live, and Annie. But yeah, she's she's kind of fallen off the map. So she was fun to rediscover, and I really liked her work here, but we'll get to that. So we might as well just dive in here, Dunks, because there's a lot to unpack. Digging into Kaufman's many, many neurotic existential paradoxes, <laughs> I guess is what I'm going to go with. Uh, to begin with, this movie is all about being someone else. And I think that was really interesting to me. Why is it that everyone or are we as humans so drawn to being someone else? And I think what Kaufman shows us pretty brilliantly through his work is that we don't really know who we are as well as we like to think we do. And so he just mines way deeper than we're used to. And just the idea of being someone else and the appeal of that, I think you see that in how we idolize athletes and movie stars and all these people. And I was just kind of interested about that idea. Craig is a puppeteer and it's all about controlling someone else. And then basically John Malkovich is just the ultimate puppet. Heady abstract stuff, but Charlie will always give you one line to really take away. We see that in the scene where uh, Craig Schwartz, played by Cusack, has built a puppet of himself and a puppet of Maxine. Tell me, Craig. Why do you love puppeteering? Well, Maxine, I'm not sure exactly. Perhaps it's the idea of becoming someone else for a little while, being inside another skin, thinking differently, moving differently, feeling differently. Interesting, Craig. So yeah, that sums it up right there. Just what's it like to be someone else? Yeah, and I think to some degree, quintessentially human because you are only ever inside your own head. And so while you can imagine or act off the belief that everyone else has the same emotional complexity as you, you don't actually know how they feel or experience life in terms of the texture of seconds or how emotions feel to them, how it's stronger or weaker, or even just what edge it takes. That is really Maybe the appeal is we want to know we're not alone or we just want to get out of our own heads and have some sort of relief. Or maybe it's just the strange factor. You know, you know yourself, you're tired of yourself. (laughs) We got that. (laughs) And you just want to, you want a little relief to, to experience how someone else is feeling the world. We love the bit where the first John Malkovich incorporated customer. Can I be anybody that I want to be? Well, you actually, you can be John Malkovich. It's perfect. It's my second choice, but it's wonderful. (laughs) Which is just great because you just wonder, well, what's your first choice? Like, (laughs) like how he would right immediately do that was the second choice. I don't know. So, I mean, do you have a first and second choice dunks? If, if I had to be part of any power couple, I think it would have to be Maya Rudolph. And Paul Thomas Anderson. We got the humor. We got the extravagant filmmaking. I think that would be a dream team. You're saying PTA is your second choice. 
<laughs> is Maya my number one then? I don't know. I was trying to get to that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's certainly the fascination of wanting to see the world through someone else's eyes. Certainly escapism, wanting to just get out of your own mind, which can be a prison for some people. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, why I enjoy traveling, just seeing something with, with new eyes. Love watching films to see someone else's point of view because I'm too tired of drowning in my own at the end of the day. But yeah, with this film, like, it's interesting what, what celebrity meant in 1999 versus what it means now. In a sense, it was ahead of its time. I mean, in many ways, this movie's ahead of its time. But if you look at the idea of this portal, I was thinking about it. It's almost like so, how social media is, right? We're obsessed with celebrity. We want to know what their life is like, see life through their eyes. In this movie, it's a portal. But now in you know, 2020, it's Instagram, it's Twitter, uh, it's Facebook. And so we have access to these celebrities like we never have before. Uh, where anything from you know, politicians to movie stars to athletes are able to basically directly interact with us. And that is new. And so I think it's interesting how he was able to tap into what social media became for us through something as fantastical as a portal. We know, but in this, in the same sense, like when John Malkovich, if you're inside his head, looking at what he's having for breakfast, you know, that's the same as him Instagramming <laughs> his breakfast. That's exactly the same thing. Yeah. And you, you think it's interesting. Like this came out, you know, one year after uh, Truman Show. So just that yeah, idea of obsessively following one person or living through one person. But I think for me, social media has taught seeing someone's stream of consciousness is much more often scary than exciting. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think that's reflecting being John Malkovich. It's a lot more scary than it is exciting. You know, I think he gets to that. Yeah, and one of my favorite lines, like Malkovich says, I have seen a world that no man should see. Craig says, really? Because most of the people think it's a rather enjoyable experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that whole sequence. Are we going to talk about that Malkovich sequence? When Malkovich is in Malkovich? Well, yeah. When, yeah, and he's got boobs. And that's just a an image I will never get out of my head. I really, <laughs> really. It's just like smooth and hairless all the way to the head. It was just, <laughs> nope, that's, that's no amount of alcohol therapy is going to make that get out of the head. Anyway, and then everything's just Malkovich, Malkovich. I just, that was a, I was an interesting portrayal. I was, I, so that was one thing going again to, I haven't seen this movie in a while. I remembered he went inside his own head, but for the life of me, I couldn't remember what happened. So watching that with fresh eyes was uh, pretty, pretty enjoyable. So then maybe, Ryan, if you want to look at the brighter side, 13 years from now, you will forget <laughs> Malkovich. And I could be starred by Malkovich with boobs and a red dress all over again. <laughs> the cycle of life continues. So moving on to another main theme of this film, Duncan, I was really struck by just how self-determination is such a, to me, it's the focus of the film. And maybe you can disagree with me if you like, but it's just we attempt or we almost have to attempt to control our lives and determine our lives, even though we don't understand. So I think it shows these efforts in the sense of, I mean, this will be going into spoilers a bit. This movie came out in 99. If you haven't seen it, maybe pause, go watch it, come back. But as you look at how Craig basically wants to, he wants to control life, get everything he wants. So he starts meddling with powers that are outside of his control, even though he can act like he's controlling them. 
And he's trying to play a puppeteer over powers that really hold him or us like puppets. And it's basically futile. And he ends up creating his own cage through his attempts to play with things he doesn't understand. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it makes sense. Is it easy to digest? No, because once again, we're, we're, we're diving into the deep end. Through all of Charlie Kaufman films, there's, you know, sort of like a slight puppeteer or controlling someone else. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. The doctors, in a sense, you know, are puppeteers sort of removing memories. That's you trying to control your life. In Synecdoche, New York, instead of puppeteer, it's a theater director controlling people, actors. We'll go into that deep, you know, because I was there at one point, you know, wanting to act so you could live someone else's life, view someone else's mind point of view. But yeah, I mean, just certainly trying to control life uh, can be difficult. You can't, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition or COVID-19 to make us sit at home in our own filth for a good six months. <laughs> for a good long wallow in our own psyches. I mean, honestly, this is the heartbeat of Kaufman's work for me. I think it's, to me, it's his, the thesis of his career and all his films is how we have these impulses and drive to try to uh, make these efforts to control or make some meaning out of life. And really, all these efforts do is, is just to build a cage that holds us. Like, we almost just build our own cages that capture us, which is, you know, in the mind, you're stuck in your own mind. So all these attempts to get outside or somehow bring some semblance of control just further that captivity. And I think that's just fascinating. I think if you take that thread, um, yeah, if you just take the thread of us trying to control life, we don't understand and we can't control how it ends up just uh, making us worse off than we were. So Ryan, you're saying give up on trying? <laughs> what's well, I say. So is the alternative just to flounder on a street corner? Dry humping puppets against each other until some angry ferret cold cocks you like Craig? I mean, I'm not really sure what the alternative is. Was that a greater symbolism for God telling him to get his ish together? I don't know. I just, I, I'm not saying, I guess I don't know really what the alternative is, but I mean. <laughs> Death will be the final silencing. So Duncan also, I mean, layers, so many layers here. Uh, this movie deals with fidelity, masculinity, career and passion, success, uh, reality being mundane, the identity uh, of yourself and feeling like yourself. And this is a really another fascinating thing for me watching this movie um, is I feel like through the character of Lottie, when she enters, that's Cameron Diaz's character, and she enters John Malkovich, I really feel like... Kaufman was delving into and really exploring a lot of the transgender experience. I would be really interested to know if he was doing it on purpose before it was prominent in like our cultural zeitgeist. Uh, not that people didn't experience that in 99, but we weren't talking about it or the rights and the awareness was not uh, like it is now. And so I'm really fascinated to know if that was just intentional or was that just a plot device for him no i mean it's it's certainly not a political issue there's a tongue-in-cheek dealing with it you know cameron diaz yelling suck my dick that's funny <laughs> <laughs> um, i laughed i laughed yeah. so i mean it's i mean the previous you know films that came up with uh, you know we're dealing with transgender issues around that time you know we're crying game and ace ventura which you know inspired a vomit montage when dealing with transgender. So 
this is certainly a progression since then, not, you know, progressive by today's standards, but if you're thinking of being someone else, 50% of the population is female, you're going to consider being female. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting because just like the portal kind of being prophetic and ahead of its time with it, with social media, I feel like the character of Lottie and the feeling of identity and finally feeling like yourself or being in the wrong body. Uh, again, he's ahead of his time where he's speaking to things that I guess were rumbling around uh, in our cultural subconscious that have since come out uh, stronger and we're actually having conversations about. Oh, yeah. Here's a line for you, uh, Ryan. Behind the stubble and the too prominent brow and the male pattern baldness, I sensed your feminine longing and it just slew me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's that's a way way to my heart right there. (laughs) So did you not see that femininity in Malkovich yourself, Ryan? Uh, you know, not till, not till he was in that low cut red dress. Then his femininity was very much in my face. (laughs) So Duncan, you also felt like there were some, maybe some themes along this transgender identity, uh, topic in Synecdoche. Yeah. In Synecdoche, New York, um, similar things up here of trying to, you know, control other people or be someone else through them, uh, vicariously living through them. But yeah, the, the main character, by the end of the film, he has changed roles with another woman and that woman takes over his role. I think there's a few times he expresses the idea of he thought he would live life better as a woman. Certainly not front and center theme, but when you got so many themes, there's a little nuggets of truth in there too. When Goffman's trying, you know, attempting to explain all of existence and life to us in reality, everything gets mixed in. The box is checked. Duncan, we would be remiss if we did not pick some of our favorite Kaufman lines from every film, I feel like, particularly since he's known for his writing. So my favorite Kaufman line in this film is hands down when he's talking to his boss. Damn fine woman, Flores. I don't know how she puts up with this speech impediment of mine. You don't have a speech impediment, Dr. Lester. It's very kind of you to lie. You see, I've been very uh, lonely in my isolated tower of indecipherable speech. I mean, who hasn't felt like that when you're talking to somebody about something that feels very important and you just feel like they do not care or do not get it? The, yeah, the banter back and forth between the secretary and his boss and just the miscommunications are fun there. But for me, I'm going lowbrow again when Maxine says, Hey, let's do it on his dining room table. Then we'll make him eat an omelet off of it. No! Shut up, you overrated sack of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that Malkovich was down for this. Okay, so this movie is for fans of John Malkovich, naturally. Although I will say the greatest crime of this film is that John Malkovich is one of two actors who delivers the F-bomb the best. Him and Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, they have made a true art out of delivery of the F-bomb. And there was only one John Malkovich F-bomb in a movie called Being John Malkovich. I feel like that's a crime against Malkovich fans. I mean, after this, I almost felt like I had to watch Burn After Reading just to, just to get my fill. Who doesn't want Malkovich rage? Malkovich is your number two in this scenario. I think he is my number two. I guess Samuel Jackson's my number one. So this is for fans of Malkovich. This is for fans of, I would say, Coen Brothers' absurdist comedies. Uh, this has a different flavor than the Coen Brothers, but it's in the same ballpark. And then for fans of existential burdens, <laughs> if you want an existential burden, just get in there and just get your shoulders under it. 
Yeah, feel free to laugh at your own pain. This this will help you get through it. Duncan, top five favorite puppets. This inspired me. Uh, <laughs> I think my favorite puppet, hands down, Franklin from Arrested Development. No need to go further. If you haven't watched Arrested Development, I won't ruin it. After that, I was pretty formed as a child by Kermit, an animal. I love the Muppets and Kermit was, you know, knew he was sensitive. He, and the <laughs> animal was great. He was just a mess. Then Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Henrietta the Pussycat, you know, speaking my feelings to me when I didn't know how to speak my feelings to myself. And then Lamb Chop. I mean, in retrospect, this is a very morbid and cruel name for a lamb puppet. But <laughs> Lamb Chop was probably my number five. What about you? Any, any meaningful puppets in your life? Oh, yeah. We will get up with some dark childhood puppets. Okay. I haven't seen it in many years, but Kid, kid Show Gone Wrong, Wonder Showsen. I think that was like an MTV show where things went off the rails and went very, very dark. Speaking of dark, number four, Dark Crystal. Just watch that reboot on Netflix. Number three, got to go with NYC puppets, whether it's Sesame Street, watching a lot of that these days, and Daniel Tiger from Mr. Rogers, which you just mentioned. We also have the Muppets Take Manhattan, another fine piece of New York cinema. And we can't forget the Ninja Turtles. So number three, NYC puppets. Number two, the Queen Alien in Aliens. And number one, the never-ending story. Which puppet you say? Oh, I created another list of top five never-ending story puppets. Five, more of the ancient one. Number four, Racing Snail. Three, Rockbiter. Two, Gamork, the messenger of the nothing. And sweet baby Falcor. One day will probably be tattooed on my body. Number one. <laughs> For my final thoughts on Malkovich. I did feel like when the portal jumping started in earnest in the third act, it kind of lost some of its personality. But I will say this is my favorite ending for a Kaufman film. I think it's incredible. I think it's haunting. Perfectly captures that cage of our own making while we try to uh, play God in our lives. It's just um, my favorite Kaufman ending for a film. <laughs> Wait, in our friendship, which one of us is Charlie Sheen? Which one of us is Malkovich? I feel like we come across this a lot. First cow, which one of us was King Lou? Which one of us was Cookie? We need roles determined. A game that has appeared time to time is who are we going to funk, marry, or kill? Ryan says he's going to kill. All right. Yeah, for me? Ryan, you can't call dibs on some woman, Ryan. We're being progressive here. <laughs> yeah, this all, I think this whole game is anti-progressive. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I'll let Greg play me like a puppet. Oh, Moving on. Stop, stop. That's too far. <laughs> too far. That's the end of that segment. Have you no shame, sir? I'm insane. I'm Earl Bros. I don't know what that word means. I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? It's self-indulgent. It's narcissistic. It's solipsistic. It's pathetic. I'm pathetic. I'm fat and pathetic. Well, Duncan, you, uh, you went a little deeper in your Kaufman filmography than I did. And uh, I noticed that you, you're a glutton for punishment. You love that sadist, masochistic, existential dread. So you went Human Nature, 2001, Adaptation, 2002, and Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, 2002, all Kaufman-pinned films. Yes, I am a completist. And as we're saying, as a part-time stay-at-home uncle, you got some pre-time on your hands. So... 
I did the research. Introducing those little little kiddos to things that are going to make their head spin. No, we watched gummy bears and that was a little too scary for them. So I think it's going to be, it's going to be maybe a decade or two before we get into Kaufman with the, with the tiny ones. Human Nature came out in 2001. One of my favorite parts of this podcast is watching the early films of directors, writers, actors who we think at their top of their game, going back to their early work and seeing that it just didn't connect. So instead of saying like they didn't have it, just seeing with a little hard work, with a little self-determination, Ryan, that you can grow into an incredible artist. So yeah, if these early podcasts are garbage, don't worry. In 10 years, we'll be great. And that's a veiled criticism of me. I won't hear it and I won't respond to it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're going to human nature. Charlie wrote the screenplay, directed my Michelle Gondry, who, you know, went on to do Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. His first feature film. Uh, He'd only done a couple shorts and a couple music videos up to this. Starring Tim Robbins, Patricia Arquette, and Rice Ifans. It's the same art director, production designer, and set dressing as being John Malkovich. We've got Guy Ritchie's DP. So we got Guy Ritchie's guy. Who's your guy? That's my guy, Guy Ritchie. But it's really interesting with all this talent surrounding it. It just didn't come together. Uh, Like the critics are giving it a 49, audience 61. For me, I think just the actors are playing the joke. They're not playing it sincere. Like as absurd as being John Malkovich is, they are playing it straight. Like they are, they are feeling everything. This just felt a little, just going for the joke and the jokes weren't there, felt a little flat. I mean, the basic plot of the film is Tim Robbins uh, is a very uptight scientist trying to teach mice table manners. That's his top goal. So you can see controlling other people, another theme. What a hook. Um, um, and then he stumbles across uh, Rise Ifens, who is a little boy whose dad kidnapped him and raised him in the woods as an ape. And then we have Patricia Arquette, who uh, is just happy to be there. Who <laughs> <laughs> is, as we see, as a little Lizzie McGuire, as a little Hillary Duff, it, covered in hair, so she runs away into the woods. So you have all the quirk and the silliness there got you know what does it mean to be human civilized controlling others being yourself just doesn't really connect we're going to jump ahead to confessions of a dangerous mind this was him adapting chuck barris who was a the gong show host uh, i think in the 60s who wrote a biography about how he was actually a cia killer so delusions of grandeur is it fact who knows what's going on aren't we all aren't we all (laughs) We're all yeah, James Bond in our own head. But yeah, this was George Clooney's directorial debut. Uh, he did not include Charlie Kaufman in the process afterwards. So Clooney got his Oceans buddies. We got Julia Roberts in there. We got cameos from Brad Pitt and Matt Damon. But it's starring Sam Rockwell, who was in an episode of Stella and a Stella short. So he is royalty in my book, uh, along with Drew Barrymore. This was an okay film. Certainly doesn't feel like a Charlie Kaufman film, except for this one line, which I'll Ryan say, absolutely except, loves. Take it away, Dunks. This is it. Yeah. So I'm not sure if this is Chuck Barris's creation or Charlie Kaufman's, but let's prepare to bring it down a notch. When you are young, your potential is infinite. You might do anything, really. You might be Einstein. You might be DiMaggio. Then you get to an age where what you might be gives way to what you have been. You weren't Einstein. You weren't anything. That's a bad moment. (laughs) 
All right. Welcome to That's a Bad Moment podcast where we haven't been anything, so we're potting about it. <laughs> and then adaptation. Now you so wanna, yeah, you want to sell me on adaptation, which you're going now after my second least favorite actor, Nick Cage. So speaking of Nick Cage, I'm going to start off. One of the films I saw this week was Mandy by Panos Cosmotos. I'd say, you know, it's just your typical 1980s LSD-fueled biker gang occult-ridden psychedelic trip. I love another weekend for you in San Francisco. (laughs) Oh, all of San Francisco rolled up into one filthy, beautiful experience. But I was watching the first hour and I was like, wow, Nicolas Cage's performance is really subdued here and like underperformed and quiet. But then the last hour of the film, he is covered in blood (laughs) yelling all the way through. They might have just sedated him. Just like, the, just the, for like, we need you subdued. You can't do it. We're going to sedate you for the first two weeks of the shoot. Then you can go. Let that boy run wild. And they did. And I absolutely loved it. Okay. So uh, a side recommendation for Mandy, but you still haven't sold me an adaptation or the rewatch. I've seen it once again. This is way back when I saw the other Kaufman. All I really remember is the birth scene at the beginning of the montage. So this was Spike Jones's follow-up to being John Malkovich. Charlie wrote this with his brother, Donald Kaufman, which doesn't actually exist and just a figment of his imagination because while he was trying to adapt a real book, he just spun off into insanity. So the key word, the touchstone for this film is Orosboros, the snake eating itself. Charlie writing about Charlie trying to write about a book. So yeah, there's your spinoff into madness. But Ryan, talk to me, Dunks. Let, just I'll let it off your chest. You got something on your chest. Talk to me. All right. The performances, we got an Oscar nomination for Charlie, a win for Chris Cooper, a nomination for Meryl Streep, and a nomination for Nicolas Cage in dual roles. This film has everything we love. It has the self-loathing, nonstop rambling stream of consciousness as we get in Peep Show. We have a narrative break in structure to show the entire evolution of the existence of Earth and humanity, just like we got in Tree of Life. We even have Judy Greer, almost a nod to Kitty Sanchez, flashing the camera in Arrested Development. Say goodbye to these. We don't say goodbye. We say hello for the first time. We had, a, we had the swamp of sadness like a never-ending story. And here's one jab. Charlie rips on Donald saying how bad screenplays about serial killers and multiple personalities are, which seems like a shot at Fincher, but Fincher had a cameo in being John Malkovich. Okay, all right. I'm willing to revisit, if only for the Peep Show. <laughs> we'll talk a lot more about Peep Show and mental health when we get into Synecdoche, New York on the next episode. All that leads up to what I assume many would consider Charlie's masterpiece, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. What if you stay this time? I walked out the door. There's no memory left. Come back and make up a goodbye at least. Let's pretend we had one. Jim Carrey, he's heartbroken. Uh, his girlfriend underwent a procedure to erase him 
from her memory. That is Kate Winslet playing Clementine. So he decides to do the same. However, as he watches his memories of her fade away, he realizes he still loves her and he wants to correct the mistake. But is it too late? So this won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, which I did not know. Goffin's not just getting noms. He's, he's winning trophies, like Duncan's <laughs> cycling trophy that he showed me at the beginning before we potted. Kaufman is all about bringing home the hardware. He's all about wins. Gut, like, what was your gut reaction? I remember this movie the best. I remember liking it while being slightly surprised by the concept design. So I wasn't familiar with Gondry yet or Science of Sleep. So just Jim Carrey being in a sink as a baby, being bathed, it's just a, you just, you just don't get that image out of your head either. Joining, yeah. Joining like, John Malkovich with boobs and hairless. <laughs> it's just, there's a couple of scenes. You just don't get that image out of your head. I remember thinking I liked the image is and like the concept design and thinking it was bold um, rather than conventional. That was most of my remembrance. What about you? Certainly the visual visuals. You see Michel Gondry blew up on the scene with all of his white stripes videos, just very playful sort of mixing in stop motion animation. Yeah. Experimental music video, but seeing it here just really help tell the story, show the mind sort of disappearing from itself, the balance of nostalgia uh, in the present moment. For me, this film's such such more an emotional experience than than a real heady experience. It certainly makes me feel more than any of Kaufman's films. Um, there's certainly a lot to think about, but I think I was just slowly trickling those tears for like the last hour of the film, where it's sort of you know simultaneously crushing but also just beautiful. So it was really great to watch this again for me. I think I was not as emotionally invested or connected to this film. So I did not like it as much as I liked it the first time. And so we'll get into that. But to begin with, I feel like one of the big talking points in this film is, again, there's threads that go through all of Kaufman's films. When you watch Synecdoche, when we review it, the, one of the big conceits of Synecdoche is the end is built into the beginning. And so I think that this movie takes the end is built into the beginning conceit of Synecdoche and transposes it onto a relationship. So can love and romance survive? Uh, if the ultimate disillusionment that so many romances or relationships have to either overcome or end at is known and voiced at the beginning. And I just think like a lot of Kaufman stuff, it's really fascinating. He's coming at it from a completely different point of view and perspective and wrestling with these ideas from new angles. And I think that's really interesting. Guys, it, it's been almost 20 years. We're, we're going to talk about this, assuming you've seen it. If you're listening to podcasts about film, this is, this is a film you've probably seen. Unless you're a young little squirt. Well, I don't know why you stumbled across us, but thank you. Don't start with this episode <laughs> because you might be depressed. <laughs> oh, hey, you've got those teenage hormones coursing through your body. Don't worry. You'll get out on the other side. As I said, we'll, we'll talk about mental health in the, in the next episode more. The version of hell, which I never knew existed, would be listening to a cassette of your partner saying everything they hate about you. And maybe even worse, having to sit in front of someone as you're saying all those things too, that, that is a, a fresh hell I did not know existed, Ryan. 
Ovens discovering new types of hells. <laughs> that that could be a tagline for him. I mean, I think it's interesting again how all of his all of his movies are dealing with the same thing, and it's almost like he was talking about the end is built into the beginning before he even made Synecdoche. Which now, which naturally brings up: Does Kaufman not travel through time like the rest of us? All of his <laughs> ideas on the same plane. Where is Christopher Nolan to explain this to us? It's just crazy how. Kaufman is singular in his writing to where he's writing about the same things from a fresh perspective, showing that he's wrestling with them in different points in time in his life and his maturity and his thinking. And I feel like rarely do you see such strong threads. I'm, I, he's, he's clearly a focused man. He's, he's all about <laughs> existentialism. He's the master. So, that, so that's one thing I find interesting about Charlie Kaufman. A lot of it is sort of, from the perspective of the man who can't find love in a relationship that's happening through all the films, sort of just the loser who can't get, get the woman who just has no understanding of women. But Charlie has been married to the same woman his entire career. They may be going on like 30 years of marriage at this point. He's a faker, Ryan. He he's doesn't know what it really is. He's just getting all of it out in his films. He's just, he's just getting it out. It's called an outlet and it's healthy. Duncan, one day we'll find one. <laughs> um, so you're really? saying the ending is built into the beginning. Um, are you talking about the narrative structure? Or are you talking about life? We're all born to die. What are you, what are you saying, Ryan? In Synecdoche, that's something that is voiced. In this movie, I mean, again, going into spoilers, the movie starts with the end of the movie, but you don't know it is. The movie then ends with, the beginning of their second go around, which is them voicing all the things they hate about each other. So it's almost, you know, one of the, I don't know if best is the right word, but one of the most exciting things about love when you first meet someone and you connect with them is you overlook all their faults. And it's just kind of like the sugary rush high. The cliche is, you know, people like, oh, you know, I can't imagine being mad at you or fighting and stuff like that. And it's almost like he takes all of that, all that uh, just head rush. And then he takes all the hardest parts of a relationship which is hearing how someone actually sees and thinks about you about your ugly sides about your bad sides someone who knows you best it can really critique you and see you clearly in a way you probably can't see yourself and you have to hear it at the beginning of the relationship so i think it's a an incredible conceit for him to have us wrestle with those ideas of like can love survive that because ultimately in the way that we experience time that is what love has to survive do we believe in soulmates or do people just have preferences? So even though you've tried to erase someone from your mind, you still are who you are. You still are what you love. Well, that, I think that was a line from adaptation. I just spread it out there. You're not who loves you. You are what you love. Did you see them as soulmates or did you just see like, I assume they're in their early thirties in this film. Do they love what they love and they just can't separate separate from their preference or are they soulmates what you think i saw them as just like connection i think you know when you're lonely or if you feel like you've had a lot of negative relationships or if you feel just really isolated i think connection is just really exciting i think that's a big part of his movies i think we all yearn for human connection we all need it whether we admit it or not I don't know if I think they were soulmates so much as they were just excited to make a connection, which honestly, that kind of goes back to Anomalisa, which we're not talking about. But 
when you feel like you're lost in a sea of people who are nameless and faceless and you're alone, when you feel like you discover someone who is like you and they're alive and they're different from everyone else, uh, that connection is exciting and it's intoxicating and it really powerful. And I think the best part about this film is he acknowledges that while also acknowledging that love is a commitment. So I think maybe that's what you're saying with preference, like ultimately uh, feelings aren't love and they can't dictate a beautiful long-term relationship. Ultimately you have to be committed to that person. And I think that maybe that's what he's trying to get out with. Like they have to uh, recognize that there's going to be a commitment here because they're hearing the bad things from the start. I mean, I think it's a mix, but I would say it's more like connection or I don't know if commitment's the right word. Cause I do think there are some people who um, just make it work with people that they meet. Um, I think that's ex- than, like, you know what I mean? It's better than living life alone kind of thing. Ooh. And, it, <laughs> and I'm not saying like that as a critique. I just think that that's a part of the human experience for some people. Yeah. Uh, so one, one of the lines that stuck out for me from Joel, don't want to say I relate to this, but why do I fall in love with every woman I see who shows me the least bit of attention? You know, I thought about, I thought about us when he said that, because I just, on our bike tours, I was like, yep, I was pretty much Duncan and I. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about that. I laughed pretty hard when I read that. I was like, wow, it's like easy coughing. Get out of Duncan in my head. Oh, and now I'm having a flashback to, to a sad moment in my life, watching The Simpsons. And if you can relate to Mo, that's not a good sign. But there's someone who pokes Mo with a stick and he says, at least I'm being touched. <laughs> I didn't see their, their coming together as no one else will love us, will love each other. I saw sort of the accepting someone for their faults and overcoming them rather than persecuting them for them. It's just, you have to accept them to move forward. I mean, if you love someone, you have to love the whole person and we're all flawed, broken people. So you have to learn to love the things that you could hate at the beginning or might annoy you because you have to see them for the human they are and not just a annoyance to you. I think it's all the difference between seeing the person and just seeing or, and just feeling how they affect you. So one is self-focused, the other is the other person focused. Um, And I think this goes into what you were saying about a lot of the men in his movies, you know, they seem to have really unhealthy or uh, messed up views of women or relationships, this dream girl thing. And I think that Kaufman has gotten a little bit of grief for that. But I think the point is, he's trying to illustrate how many, I think it's, I mean, I don't know, I don't know a guy who hasn't experienced this, how you don't have these unhealthy expectations or ideas of what a relationship or your quote unquote dream girl would be. And, and it doesn't work in reality. And I think that in his movies, that doesn't work in reality. And so I don't think he's necessarily trying to champion that so much as he's trying to explore that. Yeah. So when I was reading about him, there's the critique of the manic pixie dream girl, uh, as seen by Clementine in this film, uh, Natalie Portman in, uh, oh, Garden State. Garden State, yeah. So, yeah, that was another film of the time. Maybe it hasn't hold up, but Garden State. With Natalie Portman. <laughs> I watched it a couple of years ago. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of like reading your old journal when you were in high school. <laughs> You're just a little embarrassed. You're like, oh, a little cringy. A little cringy. A little cringy. I can see that. And then Zoe Deschanel 
if it's in anything she does, but people are definitely seeing that in 500 Days of Summer, which, interesting, Joseph Gordon-Levitt thinks he was the bad guy in that film. Maybe if a woman repeatedly tells you she's not interested in a relationship and just wants to be friends, you're the creep for continuing to pursue it. So yeah, as Clementine says herself in the film, Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm going to make them alive. But I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. I remember that speech really well. I had you pegged, didn't I? Yeah, the whole human race pegged. Hmm, probably. There's fantasy versus reality. Which I think that that shows what Kaufman's actually trying to deal with. Like, he's trying to exemplify how men or the whole dream girl thing, and then he's subsequently tearing it down through that line. I mean, this. how many of us have had relationships? Like, even when you hear that, you still assign it a different meaning or ignore it or whatever it is, you know? <laughs> I mean, you're just like, oh, well you know, we're different or, oh, you know, you just choose to repress it and ignore it or pretend like it wasn't said, or you somehow play gymnastics with it in your head until it means something different. So I think, again, that goes back to, I mean, his movies, we're stuck in our own head. We only have our own experience. And to truly love someone, you have to put them first or try to love them and see them for who they are, which requires a lot of work. I think that's good. But again, I think this movie's crux is its emotional investment which I did not have. And then also, this brings me up to the side plot of Mary and the Doctor and Patrick and Clementine. I wanted to ask you, does, did that detract or enhance? Because I think you can even tell from the way I'm asking the question, it detracted <laughs> for me. Ryan, are you asking a question or are you forcing your opinion on me? <laughs> Leading the witness, Your Honor. I was totally emotionally invested. I was going along for the ride with them. I thought it was a beautiful ride with all the pain and all the beauty all the love um so i yeah i was so sell me on those side plots why like plots yeah Yeah, so this is one of the great things about seeing the film so many years later i i forgot the side plots but certainly you know enjoy going into this time around as we're saying with mary and the doctor uh we see that even though she worked for the company and fell in love with her boss she chose to have her boss erase her mind then goes goes back to clean it all up, um, set everything straight in her mind. And then Patrick and Clementine, I think Patrick is the boy that sad little boys need to pay attention to. Telling someone everything they want to hear, cyber stalking them, being who they, who you think they want you to be, that's not the key to having someone fall in love with you. Yeah, I mean, Elijah Wood here, sorry Elijah Wood fans and Lord of the Rings fans, he goes full creeper and it is it is kind of fun to watch. It reminded me a little bit of Wilfred, if you've ever seen Wilfred, which is hilarious. Oh, the imaginary dog? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's kind of the same character, except a little, a little more uh, socially acceptable sheen on the front. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I like the Patrick bit. I did think it was pretty telling because he's dealing with love to have Patrick. Yeah, just tell her anything she wants to hear. Whatever you want me to be, I'll be. I thought that was a good addition. But for me, the Mary and the Doctor bit, I don't know why. I just kind of felt like it was shoehorned in there constantly. I think it only pops up like three or four times, but I I enjoyed it. For me, one of the best performances was his wife. She only she only has like one or two minutes of screen time, but she rolls up, she sees in the window, and her just not disgust, 
not frustration, somewhere in between, but just letting it go saying they deserve each other. So I think that's the point where it's bringing it up again. You know, our soulmates, are you going to find who you're going to find or your preference? But I see once Mary realizes the truth, then I think that shows not soulmates. This was a matter of that was the right person for the right moment. That moment is no more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, again, I think it was just the emotional investment. I mean, I loved, so I loved watching this movie again through the lens of science of sleep and be much more uh, familiar with Gondry's work. I loved his fingerprints all over this. That was a really fun, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's because I thought, I mean, I just didn't buy into the romance the way I, I wanted to, or the way I remember doing so the first time. And maybe it's just because it's been hyped up so much or I've seen more films and that's just not that kind of portrayal just doesn't connect with me as much. Or maybe because you're married now and you're not a little sad, lonely boy. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm in a committed relationship now and I'm not Joel Barris crying in the train, falling in love with every woman who looks at him. But I have been there. I'm on that train, baby. Yeah. So did you not like the film as much as you did the first time around, you think? Yeah, I didn't like it as much. I would say the first time around, I think I would have given it like four, four and a half stars. This time it was definitely three and a half stars. Uh, I loved the ultimate conceit at the core. But again, I didn't. I think you said it well when you said this movie uh, is something along the lines of it's like emotional journey more than an intellectual one. So I think I think if you don't get on that emotional train when it's leaving the station at the beginning, you just kind of feel like you're behind the whole way. And so I think that's, I don't know. I, I don't know that that's necessarily a critique so much as maybe an observation. You know, sentimental is, feels like a curse word in, you know, high art, but it, it was just musical to me. Going along with the flow, just feeling it, you like falling in love and losing it at the same time and sort of nostalgia for a moment as it happens. That's sort of shown in a much more tangible sense when, you know, they're on a date and he says like, I, I've got to go now, I've got to go. But then as soon as he's home, he calls her. And I think that's sort of the building of the fantasy of a person. Like you love longing them more than you love being with them. Yeah, yeah. You love the idea of them that is able to be constructed out of their presence or lived in out of their presence. But when you're in their presence, they blow that up just by existing as they are. That's it. I thought that was a really, you said that to me back when we had kind of our phone conversation about this episode. And I thought that was a really fascinating and uh, insightful point. I agree. Ryan, I'm not going to say anything more and blow up your fantasy of me being an insightful, kind human being. Oh, Duncan, we, we, we've already had the tape recorders play. <laughs> the tape recorders have played and we're still five years in. That that if has left the station. That is one thing that bike. So basically, being on a bike tour is kind of like Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. <laughs> Again, I don't know which one of us is Joel, which one of us is Clementine. We need to figure out our roles in our relationship, but it, it's comparable. Oh my god, you just started thinking about that. No, I was going back. I was thinking like, which one of us is Malcatraz, John Malkovich, and which one of us is the Machine, Charlie Sheen. So which one of us is the heady, very serious person? And which one of us is the freewheeling dirtbag? <laughs> Don't answer that. Okay. Uh, I would say this movie is for fans of uh, Gondry. If you like his work, his fingerprints all over this, like I said earlier, for fans of meaty Jim Carrey leading man parts. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Tobias. Tobias. The rest of development. Uh, 
but yeah, I mean, if you want to see Jim Carrey's acting chops, um, or if you haven't seen him in a while, this is just, uh, it's fun to see him in this. And then also if you're an Elijah Wood hater, who's going to eat this shit up? <laughs> Cause he is pretty reprehensible and annoying. I was annoyed by him and he wasn't even trying to date me. No. Yeah. I mean, he's playing a disgusting, morally reprehensible character. A manipulative little turd. Yeah. So as they're saying, most of Charlie's films have a thesis line for you or a touchstone word or mental health disorder. We're here. Uh, the name of the memory erasing company was Lacuna, which is, you know, the spiral of a shell. Doesn't feel, you know, if you're spiraling into your subconscious to get the root out of there. But the film gets its title from Alexander Pope. The quote goes, how happy is the blameless vessel's lot? The world forgetting by the world forgot. Eternal sunshine of a spotless mind. Each prayer accepted and each wish resigned. If you don't have a past, then the future is wide open and you are living in the present and things are beautiful. <laughs> when, you, when you do have a past, then you realize you don't have a future. That's a bad moment. That's a bad moment. All right. Uh, speaking did, of I, bad I, moments, what are some bad relationship films, Ryan? Before we get into that, though, we forgot to do our favorite line from this. So my favorite Kaufman line, hands down, is when Jim Carrey is about to get the procedure done to erase his memory. And he goes, is there any risk of brain damage? And Tom Wilkinson just totally straight-faced goes, well, technically it is brain damage, on par with a heavy night of drinking. <laughs> Which just cracked me up. Because, uh, yeah, that's like typically the uh, how a lot of people try to forget things. A heavy night of drinking. <laughs> and I think that Kaufman was having fun with that. You know, just another line that just makes no sense. But Joel says, sand is overrated. It's just tiny little rocks. Counterpoint, who is hyped about sand? Yeah, it's pretty good. Ron, what are, your, what are your top five doom romances on film? Well, I love Curious Case of Benjamin Button. It just resonates with me. It goes deep. I've cried every time I've seen it. Uh, love me a little Blue Valentine. I think that for me was really refreshing because I, it was kind of the anti-rom-com and there weren't a ton of movies I'd seen at that point um, that were made in that light. Never Let Me Go is just incredible. If you have not seen that, there's uh, Love Triangle there, Andrew Garfield, Keira Knightley, and Carrie Mulligan. And then la last two are Nocturnal Animals. Uh, Tom Ford's second feature and Up in the Air, which is Clooney and Jason Reitman and Vera Farminga. Yeah, so Nocturnal Animals, I don't know if it, you know, for me, it's about ill-fated romances as just ill-fated existence. Yeah, but it's, it's built around a relationship that's romantic. And I think I, I can make my case. I know. I, yeah, I thought it was a fascinating film. Certainly writers writing about writing. Uh, once again, Ryan. I think you should re-examine adaptation. My top three Doom romances got to go with Vanilla Sky. Once again, Cameron Diaz showing that she can deliver a good performance out there. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And I feel like we've talked about it every other episode. Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, one of those glaring blind spots that you just won't let me forget. Yeah, if there's anything else, we, this uh, Kaufman has taught us to uh, reignite our love with Cameron Diaz. <laughs> <laughs> we forgot about her. We moved on. She was erased for our memories, but remember again. Welcome back, Cam Cam. 
Um, okay. Well, I feel like that's a good uh, first pod about Kaufman going to him just as a writer. Next week, we will go into him as writer-director, the two, two of our favorite Kaufmans uh, in terms of the meat of what's there, where in Synecdoche, and I'm thinking of ending things. Um, yes. Synecdoche, I had to do some, some soul-searching. That could be a top 10 film yeah. for me. I remember you texted me and said top 10, which I feel like we need some sort of like fanfare celebration segment whenever we discover <laughs> a new top 10. But we'll I don't to- think it's cracking. I don't know if it's going to crack the top 10. Uh, I think it's certainly now becoming one of the top five Michelle Williams we talked about in a previous episode. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. She is good in that. Yeah, so I feel like in Synecdoche, and then I'm thinking of ending things, you get full, unadulterated Charlie Kaufman, where in these other films, it's very strong Kaufman, but it's got a filter of other directors, other creative minds. Here, we're just, we're getting down and dirty. So this is a good primer. Uh, and next week, it's gonna. We're going deeper down the rabbit hole. We're going further. We're not turning back. We're going in that portal. We're getting in Kaufman's mind. Kaufman, it's Kaufman, Kaufman. A... So, Ren, what else have you been watching this week? I was gonna ask you the same thing. What you've been watching to break up the Kaufman? Uh, <laughs> I have been delving into some recent releases, uh, Baby Teeth and The Devil All the Time. Baby Teeth was recently released on Hulu. I believe Shannon Murphy is the director's name, but I don't quote me on that. Look it up. And then The Devil All the Time by Antonio Campos. He did Christine and Simon Killer, which I loved Christine. Long story short, Devil All the Time did not work for me. <laughs> Pretty much hated it. Uh, would not recommend, not even for Robert Pattinson's accent. Baby Teeth did work for me. Uh, I felt like it was kind of similar to some of the themes you pulled out of Eternal Sunshine. Rather than being a cliched kid coming of age who has a terminal illness, falling in love with somebody, I would say it's more of a lament. It's very poetic and ethereal. There's a lot of unconnected or disjointed scenes and moments. I think she did a really good job of kind of telling the story through moments that stick. Uh, as we look back on memory, uh, even though it kind of feels disjointed and it's harder to remember the narrative as a whole. And I think it grounds us in kind of the pained lament of what's going on through all of the characters being hurting and feeling and well-rounded. Uh, and that's how they avoid some of maybe some of the easier cliched emotional manipulation. What have you been watching, Dunks? Ooh, so much, so much Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> which is why you don't have a shirt because you don't even know what shirts are anymore uh i did i'm emotionally detached from my body and i've just i'm just pure mental energy at this point don't detach um, from your pants uh yeah since we, we've been talking about christopher nolan decided to uh watch insomnia i assume that was his least well-received film even though it's still well-received so i gave that another viewing i also watched the film it's based off the um, Norwegian insomnia. So it's interesting watching those back to back and seeing um, improvements and American neutering of sexuality and hyper more gun use. <laughs> and what was really odd, the director's commentary for insomnia, they re-edited the film so they showed it based on shooting days. Like Chris, you don't have to be weird all the time. Just play it straightforward. No, he's playing with he's playing with timelines. 
it within timelines within timelines. Uh, last night I watched Orlando. Um, speaking of uh, gender queer films, uh, with Tilda Swinton, this was her first breakout film in 1992, based off a Virginia Woolf book. Ryan, have you seen this? Heard of this? I've not heard of it. I've not seen it. Okay, so Wolf, that's my only connection. Yeah. So Tilda Swinton, the Scottish treasure, turns 60 in November. So I think we may have to do an episode of her best from each decade. Oh, I love Tilda Swinton. I'm all in on a Tilda Swinton episode. Ryan's all in. So you'll be seeing that soon. And now for the comedy corner, trying to end things on a positive note. I gave a shout out to him earlier, but John Glazer Loves Gear has been my comedy series of the week. Uh, John Glazer, New York um, sketch comedian. I think, you know, wrote for Conan. who was co-writing with Kaufman on one of his sketch shows. Uh, here, I'll just basically say this. If you find the idea of John Hodgman voicing an AI phone who has a season-long running affair with a drone, an actual drone helicopter, this is a show for you. Check it out. Total absurdity. A little bit of mind-bending as... John decides to hire a fake family to play his real family who doesn't want to be seen on reality TV. So, are we sure Charlie Kaufman didn't write this? This hey man, maybe they were spitballing it for 20 years. Hiring a family to play his family? What? Absolutely. Close. Yes. And that's a great tie in segue teaser hook for next week when we do Synecdoche, where everyone hires everyone to play themselves to play themselves ad nauseum. Hopefully you had a good time listening to this episode and you will not be hiring the Lacuna Company to erase your brain. <laughs> if you'd like to exchange messages with us, <laughs> yes, we are available at hardlythehottest at gmail.com on Instagram and Twitter at hardlythehottest. And we accept letterboxed review comments. <laughs> DM me, bro. Thank you for being part of Hardly the Hottest. I'll give you fucking magic in there. Magic? It's hardly the hottest to in town, darling. Who's the next one? I'm not a narcissist. I just like myself. <laughs> there is no room for that attitude on this podcast. And we all know it's a lie anyway. <laughs> <laughs>